0: Nothing would encourage the hearts of suffering saints more than getting a glimpse of the glory that awaits them in heaven and seeing the Lord glorified and bringing an end to sin and wickedness on the earth. In chapter 6, we saw the Lamb opening six of the seven seals from the scroll containing the decrees of God For all humanity till the end of the age. As Christ opens each of the first four seals, a certain judgment would take place on the earth. At the opening of the sixth seal, we saw the souls of the martyred saints under the altar crying out to God for him to vindicate his righteous name in bringing judgment on the wicked. And at the end of chapter seven, I'm sorry, uh, at the end of the chapter, we saw that cry being answered with a glimpse of Christ coming in judgment and the wicked fleeing into the mountain, asking for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of him who sits on the throne and the lamb. Chapter six ends with a question raised by the ungodly, and here is what they said. They said, for the great day of their, that is the one seated on the throne and the Lamb, the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? In chapter 7, we have an answer to that question. The only ones that will be left standing on the day of God's wrath are those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and sealed by His Holy Spirit. They will be protected and stand victorious with Christ in glory. Now, what we, do, we would have expected chapter 7 to begin with seal number 7. However, uh, we have an interlude. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pauses the narrative of judgment to show us who it is that will be able to stand on the day of God's wrath. He then proceeds to give us a glimpse of the church victorious in heaven. So chapter 7 contains two visions. Uh, Vision 1 shows us believers on earth being sealed for identification and protection from God's judgment. And the other is a vision of the eternal blessedness of believers in the presence of God in heaven. So this, brethren, is a glorious chapter which was given to encourage the saints to persevere under trials, knowing that God, by His mercy, will preserve us and we have a glorious future awaiting us. So as, a, as dark as things may get here on earth, we are not to lose heart. But to keep things in perspective, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, that these light afflictions cannot compare with the glory that awaits us. So it is my prayer that today's message will enliven your hope and give you joy in the midst of your sorrows. We will be looking at this chapter under these two headings, as you see in your outline, first scene one the sealing of the redeemed, verses 1 to 8, scene 2, the glorification of the redeemed, verses 9 to 17. So let's read, uh, starting with verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, chapter 7, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth, uh, the sea, uh, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Let's pray. Dear Lord We thank you and praise you. You are indeed the God of grace. You are the God of salvation. You are the God of mercy. We thank you, Lord, for these marvelous promises that are ours in Christ that are yes and amen. That those whom you have chosen from all eternity, you will preserve by your grace and power. And that, Lord, you will indeed bring us to glory. I pray that this time, Lord, as we meditate upon this passage Help us by your grace to be to find encouragement in it, Lord, and that it would revive your people. Help us, give us a vision of heaven that to, to the edification and, and enjoyment of your people and save the lost in our midst, we pray. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In the first scene, John sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth meaning north, south, east, and west. And they are ready to release the winds of God's judgment on the earth. Then a fifth angel calls out with a loud voice saying, Don't harm the earth until the elect of God are marked out and sealed so they would be identified and protected. This is an allusion to Ezekiel chapter 9, uh, when, where uh, the man with the writing case was to go through Jerusalem and to put a mark on the forehead of those who feared the Lord to protect them from the coming judgment that was to come on Jerusalem. Uh, this, uh, this is meant to encourage the hearts of suffering believers to know that they are stamped out for eternity that no matter how difficult their physical circumstances are, they will be preserved by God and are destined for glory. We learn from uh, chapter 14, verse 1, that the seal is the name of the Son and the Father, thus to identify them as the property of God himself. This was the same promise given to those who overcame in the letter to the Church of Philadelphia that it says that I will put my name upon their forehead and my father's name and the name of the city, Jerusalem, meaning they belong to God and they are citizens of heaven. How are you and I who are in Christ sealed? Let's make a, a bit of application here. Well, first of all, God the Father has chosen you from all eternity and marked you out for glory. You can be certain that nothing and no one can change that. Scripture says the Lord knows those who are His. Secondly, you've been purchased by the precious blood of Christ, thus making you to be His own. Christ bought you with His precious blood. He sealed you with the blood. And you, just like the Israelites, remember, when the blood was put on the post of the doors and the angel of death passed over them, that marked them to be part of the people of God. You have been marked by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Those whom the Father has given the Son, He will lose none. You could be certain of that. Thirdly, in the third place, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. As Pastor Joe read earlier, and opening, Ephesians 1.13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. For what purpose? Verse 14, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You've been given a guarantee. A guarantee from God Himself. That guarantee is the Holy Spirit. And what is the purpose? is that you are His and you are destined for glory. No one can change that. As Paul says, Ephesians 4.30, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. You and I have been sealed for that day and not even Satan can thwart God's plan for our lives. As we read in 1 John 5.18, We we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one cannot touch him. You have the protection of God, the seal of God, the evil one cannot touch you. You could be certain, brethren, that the entire Trinity is at work in keeping us uh, for the day of redemption. As we are told in Romans 8, 29, those whom the Father set his love upon from all in eternity, he will justify, sanctify, and glorify. No one can break that chain of salvation. Now, there are two types of sealing that we read about in the book of Revelation. The one is done by God himself that we just saw to those whom he has redeemed and marked out for eternal life. The other seal, which we read about in Revelation 13, is done by the Antichrist to all those who worship the beast. We read about it this way in Revelation thirteen sixteen. He says, It, that is speaking of the beast, also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on their right hand or on their forehead, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now, uh, what is the end of those who have that mark? Well, it tells us in chapter 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Two different seals, two different destinies. Which seal do you have? Have you been sealed by the Holy Spirit? If not, I urge you, repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today for the forgiveness of your sins. Because your destiny is very, very, very grievous and gloomy. Or else you will suffer that forever in the lake of fire. So please, turn to Christ today and without delay. Next John John hears the number of those sealed and their identity. Look with me, verses 4 to 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, there is much debate about who these 144,000 are being sealed. Uh, it is certainly not my uh, intention today to try to settle that debate. Uh, Some of you aren't even aware of the debate, but so be it. Others are very aware of it, and so for your sake, I'm going to be kind of uh, detailed in giving what those different views are and where my position is. Now, it really basically depends on what your eschatological position, uh, what you hold. My aim has been, throughout the uh, exposition thus far, is to seek to draw out practical application for us, which I believe is in keeping with the overall intent of the book, namely to build up and edify the church that is living in time of the period of Christ's resurrection and Christ's second coming, as John says, Revelation 1.3. I will mention some of the views and let you know where I land. But whatever your view is, I hope that you will still find the application to be relevant and helpful. Now, as we look at the list, let me just say this is not exhaustive. There are many variations from the different views. So this, you may not find your view in here, but these are some ones that are out there. Uh, And uh, uh, that there are... uh, so I'm told that there are about 20-plus listings of the names of the tribes of Israel in Scripture, and there's variations in, in most of them. Uh, the, here we see there's, there, it, this is unique, however, to the book of Revelation, this listing of the tribes. Now, uh, let me just point out some differences. First of all, Judah, who is the fourth in the birth order... Uh, Is mentioned first, as opposed to Reuben, who is the firstborn. The reason for this, as most commentators believe, is because it is the tribe from which our Lord Jesus came from. And in, in accordance with Jacob's prophecy in Genesis 48, 8, all his brothers will praise him and bow down before him. Thus, enlisting Judah first, he's showing that Christ is the head of the covenant community of God, both Old and New Testament. Second, in the second place, we see that Dan and Ephraim are missing. They're missing, uh, Ephraim being Joseph's son. Manasseh and Ephraim are Joseph's children. And instead, Joseph and Levi are mentioned, which are not usually mentioned because Levi had no inheritance and Joseph got the Uh, Joseph got the double portion that Reuben forfeited as a firstborn uh, because of his sin. So Joseph's inheritance was divided between his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The third thing we notice about this order is that other than Reuben, who was Leah's firstborn, the third and fourth and fifth names mentioned are those of Zilpah and Bilhah. Leah and Rachel's servant girls who were used as pawns in the power struggle between the two sisters as they were trying to win the affection of their husbands. They were surrogate mothers who didn't even have a right to name their children. Uh, here the Lord honors them and puts the names of their children right at the top of the list. What do we make of the, of all of this? Well, I, one possible thought is that the redeemed are not according to bloodlines, but according to the blood of Christ and God's electing grace. Let me say also something about the, the number itself, 144,000. As we have mentioned in the past, numbers have significance in the book of Revelation. What is the significance of 144,000? 144, well, 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 to the third, 10 cubed. Twelve is a number for the covenant people of God, both old and new. Twelve tribes, twelve apostles. I'm running through this quickly uh, because I I don't want to run out of time covering other material. I'm doing this for the sake of those who really see this as an important point. Uh, Ten indicates totality when it is multiplied by itself three times. It symbolizes completeness, completeness. Three is a reference to the Trinity and is absolute. So when a number is tripl- uh, triplicated or cubed, it is the absolute totality of that number, just like six, 6, six. Six being the number of man. So it's the absolute totality of that number. And 1,000 is the absolute totality of 10. 10 times 10 times 10. So I believe the number indicates two things. One... There are a fixed number of the elect, and not one of them will be lost, as we see them again in chapter 14, standing with Christ in glory. Two, the number of believers in the Old and New Testament is so large that it is beyond counting, just like God told Abraham that his seed would be as many as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore, Genesis 15 and so on. Let's now look at some of the different views on the 144,000. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. One, it's one view that's out there, it says that it's a symbolic number to represent the last generation of believers sealed as to be saved from destruction that is coming on the earth by the trumpet and bull's bowl judgments. Two, the number, another view is, Uh, The number refers to literal number of individuals from ethnic Israel who would be gathered in the end times from their exiled among the nations in accordance with Old Testament prophecies regarding restoration. For example, Ezekiel 48 is one of those scriptures in reference. Just as a side, Ezekiel 48 does mention Ephraim and Dan in that list. Thirdly, a third view is a figu- that it's a figurative number of the totality of the redeemed formed as an army to conduct spiritual warfare in the same way that the typical tribes were numbered in the Old Testament to determine how many males from each tribe is eligible to fight the war. You see that in, num- excuse me, in Numbers chapter 1 where it says so many thousands from this tribe, so many thousands men from this tribe, and so on. Now, uh, here's where I stand. And again, I'm not uh, saying this as with absolute dogmatism, uh, just based on some analysis and study. It is possible that the 144,000 is a symbolic number referring to the totality of believers who will be martyred, both Jews and Gentiles, at the end of time for their Christian testimony and thus completing the number of martyrs as was told to the martyrs under the altar in 611, that they are to wait till the number of their fellow servants is complete. That's possible. But I lean towards the 144,000 being a figurative number rep- representing the complete number of all believers ready to do war as a, ch- as a church militant. And then in verse 9, we see them as church triumphant in glory. Here are the reasons for my for where, why I, I lean that way. First place, in verses, if I'm going too fast, that's okay. Uh, those of you who are aware of this argumentation and this, you can track with me. The others, well, you have to put up with the rest of us. So just uh, bear, hold on in there. I'm, I'm running through this quickly so I can cover the rest of the material. In verse 4 to 8, John hears the number of the identity of the sealed again uh, saints called out, but when he looks, he sees something different. So, he says, I heard these numbers called 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, and then I looked, and what do I see? Well, verse 9 tells us, For this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. This seems to be the same equation of chapter 5. Remember it says, I, I heard, and the angel, where, where the angel says, if there is anyone worthy, let him step forward and take the scroll. And it says that there, were, there was no one, and he wept. And then the, the angel says to him, weep no more, because the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is worthy he has conquered and he says I turned around and I looked and what did he see a lamb so the lion is the same as the lamb it's one in the same persons so that's one reason why I think this is speaking one and the same uh, reason we see them the church militant on earth the church triumphant in heaven makes sense to me anyway the description mentioned of the great multitude is very, very similar to the 144,000 mentioned in Revelation chapter 14. We don't have time to read, but if you read Revelation 14, 1 to 5, here's what you'll find. 14, 14, 4 tells us that they have been redeemed from mankind as, a re, as the first fruit of God. In Revelation 7.9, it says the multitude are a representation of the elect from every people, language, and Nation. Second, the 144 have the, the name of the Father and Son written on their forehead, which is a promise to all those who overcome. We see that in 14:1 and 3:12. So everyone, every one of us have who are going to make it to heaven, have been sealed for heaven, have been chosen, and meaning that we have overcome by God's grace. And the multitude mentioned in Revelation seven fourteen tells us that they have become they have come out of the great tribulation, meaning they have overcome. Thirdly, in fourteen four they follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and in seven seventeen the Lamb will shepherd them and guide them to springs of living water. Fourthly, both are standing before the throne of God and singing praises to God fourteen three and seven nine. So these are the. The two, uh, that's second point, uh, that they are similar, those who were uh, the multitude that no man can number, and the 144,000 that we see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Thirdly, this interpretation is consistent with John's goal in writing the epistle, namely to encourage the suffering believers to continue steadfast in their faith, knowing that their suffering will one day be over, and they will forever be with the Lord. So that's my third point of argument, why I choose the position I do. Fourthly, John uses a lot of Old Testament language figuratively in the book of Revelation. If we, if we take these names literally, then we must take other uh, Old Testament names literally as, uh, uh, also. For example, Jezebel is mentioned, Sodom is mentioned, Egypt, Babylon, and so on. In 2.9 and 3.9, he had referred to some ethnic Jews as not true Jews because they persecuted the Christians in a similar way that Paul calls true Jews in chapter, Romans chapter 2, verse 29 as those who have been circumcised in heart, regenerated. Fifthly, the number 144,000 can also be found in the measurement found in Revelation chapter 21, describing the new Jerusalem that came down from heaven. The New Jerusalem contains the people of God from old and new. And it says that um, uh, uh, it's, it's the eternal habitation of all the redeemed, which has on its foundation the names of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, the length of which of the city is 12,000 stadia. And the height of the walls are 144 cubits. So. That's a position number five, number six. Every believer is sealed with the Holy Spirit no matter what time period they live in. So that's, that's my argument, and that's where I rest my case. So whatever your view is on 104,000 may, uh, may be, I believe the message that John wants to convey still is the same. One that believers throughout the centuries will be sealed and preserved by God through all manner of trials and persecution, and not one of them will be lost, but every one of them will be saved. Two, there is a glorious future awaiting all of God's children. So that message, I don't care what your view is, I hope that you can walk away understanding those two points. Let's move on. So having seen... I'll slow down a little bit now, so I could breathe in between. Poor Hinton, who's translating. Okay. Sorry, I had to do this because this was a major point of contention with at least one brother before I started this series, so I had to go through all that exercise. For the rest of you, it may not matter, but I needed to do that for at least one individual, if not more. Now, let's look briefly, uh, uh, I'm sorry, having seen the seal of the redeemed, let's now look at their glorification. Look with me at verse 9. We read this, we'll read it again. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. So now, the scene shifts. We're going from earth, seeing the believers, militant, ready to do war against sin, against whatever comes their way, trials, temptations, wrath coming. Now, the scene shifts to a view in heaven. Um, And most encouragingly we see that God preserved His people and now they're, they're glorifying Him in heaven. Now let's look brief, briefly at their iten- identity of these saints. First of all, it says that they are a multitude that no man could number from every nation, tribe, people, and language. As far as the eye could see, just like God promised uh, Abraham of his spiritual descendants would be as the stars of heaven from, not, for number, as vast as the sand of the sea. Here we see the universality of Christ's redemption. It is for every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Brethren, we get discouraged. We get discouraged when we don't see much fruit from our gospel witness here in the West. But be assured the gospel is flourishing in other parts of the world. Notice also how how in heaven, all prejudices due to ethnicity, social class, and gender are removed. Instead, they are standing in complete unity, praising God for saving them. In the same way, brethren, the church here on earth is to be a microcosm of the church in heaven, made up of all people groups united together under banner of the gospel. And I praise God as I look upon you all, and I see multi-ethnicities here. I see my brother from Africa, sister from the Caribbean, my sister also from Caribbean, South America. Here you are, God by his grace, Middle East, the other Middle Eastern is somewhere else. But by the grace of God, here we are, uh, people from nation, India back there. Hello, we don't forget India, amen. Praise God, this is his grace that uh, has united us together. There is nothing else other than Jesus Christ that brings us together and makes us one. Notice, secondly, their garments. They are wearing white garments, which is a symbol of purity and festivity. It tells us in 14c, it says, they have washed their garments, their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is paradoxical, brethren. Uh, You don't wash white garments in blood. Blood stains, right? Uh, But here, the blood of Christ gloriously removes the deeply dyed stain of our sin and makes us white as snow. As William Copper said in his hymn, there is fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. This is the only way that any of us are going to get to heaven by having our sins washed by the blood of the Lamb. If you're hoping to get to heaven on your own good works, you will be sorely disappointed because your good works are not white garments, but they are filthy garments, according to the word of God they must be washed white as snow. And the words of this hymn, well-known hymn, I want to pose this question to you. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood, in the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb? Are your garments spotless? Are they white as snow? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? It is my prayer that before the day is over, you will be washed in that blood. The palm branches are a symbol of festive joy, just like remember the palm Sunday, the all the people gathered with joyful expectation as the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem as the in the victorious entry. Uh, now, the elder describes them as, in verse 14, these are the, the ones coming out of the great tribulation. Let me address that for, for a, a brief moment. Because of this praise, some have concluded that these are people who got saved at the end before Christ's return through the witness of the 144,000. Although it is true that there will be more widespread persecution and suffering at the end prior to Christ's coming, But let me remind you, there has been, uh, nonetheless, in the history of the church, a time of great suffering and persecution. John, when he wrote this book, he says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. In Acts chapter 8, when Paul was, was wreaking havoc in the church, it tells us, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. Even today, our brethren in North Africa are suffering great persecution at the hands of militant Muslims and Hindus. And again, as I mentioned in in prayer, uh, just this uh, in May last month, in Manipur, a state in India, northeast India, 60-plus Christians, were killed at the hands of Hindus, and 200 churches were burned because of the pro-Hindu government deciding to give the Meitei Hindu tribe additional land benefits, which meant evicting some Christians from their uh, from their ancestral homes. So, to them, brethren, this is great tribulation. It's time of when these Muslims. They come through these villages. If you read about it in, in some of the World, uh, I mean, um, uh, Voices of the Martyrs, they come and they just wreak havoc, kill and maim and, and, and abduct and burn and destroy. For them, that's the end. That's the end. That's the, tr- that's the great tribulation as far as they're concerned. Finally, I believe this is speaking of great persecution throughout the church period, because the eternal blessing enjoyed by this multitude is promised to all those who overcome, as we saw in the letters to the churches. Every one of those promises that we see that these are enjoying are ones that have been given to the letters in chapter two and three. Those who overcome, they shall walk with me in white. Those who overcome, the names of my father and my name and the name of my city of my God will be upon their forehead and so on and so on. All these promises that we see that these are enjoying are promised to all who overcome. So we've seen their identity. Let's now look at their song. Verse 10. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Their song of praise is one of joyful acknowledgement, acknowledgement that the redemption and ours is due to God's sovereign grace and Christ's sacrificial death as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not one of them is praising God because they made it on their own strength, in their own ability. No, they're praising God. They're saying salvation belongs to our God. In other words, by grace I am here. By your preserving mercy, I am here. It's all to you. You know, we sing, we sing that uh, song, Amazing Grace. We say, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will bring me home. Well, they are finally home. And they can't stop singing of this amazing grace. It will be our song throughout eternity praising Him forever and ever. Now, uh, look with me at verses one, 11 to 12 to see the response of the heavenly host. The response of the heavenly host. Verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The angels around the throne respond to the jubilant cry of the saints by falling prostrate before God and offering him a sevenfold doxology. It begins with amen and it ends with amen. Amen. Each of the ascribed attributes proceeds with a definite article. So that it would be uh, the blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power and the might be to our God. Thus emphasizing that God is deserving of all blessing, all glory, all honor for the work of redemption. Because our redemption, which is the ultimate purpose of, of, for mankind, has been finally realized. And God gets all the glory. Do you remember Jesus said in, Ma- in Luke 15, He said that when there is great joy in heaven when one sinner repents. That the, the angels of God, re- well, can you imagine when they're seeing a multitude, of, of no man could number, finally in glory, redeemed, what their joy would be if they rejoice over one sinner? Well, here they are, a multitude that no man could number. The joy must be incredible. Now let's look at the state of the redeemed in heaven, verses 15 to 17. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Hallelujah. I summarize this under three points, delighting in His presence, rejoicing in His service, and abounding in His goodness. Let's look at each of these briefly. First, they are continually in the presence of God. It says He will tabernacle among us. He will behold, we will behold His glory. His radiance of his, uh, uh, of his presence will cover us. In Revelation 21, 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is a direct quotation from Ezekiel 37, 27. It says, My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Zechariah 2, 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. In the second place, we will rejoice in His service. Look at verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Heaven will be rest, but not sitting around eating bonbons. We shall rest from struggle with sin, but we will still be busy serving God continually. And we won't be weary, or tired in his service. What does that service look like? I'm sure one sister would be asking me, but we don't know for certain. But we do know one thing, that at the heart of that service, there will be praise and worship. Nevertheless, it will be the happiest employment that we can ever imagine serving our glorious King. No more hard bosses to deal with. No more hard co workers to deal with. uh, No more fighting traffic on the way to work. It will be the most joyous service we can ever render. Now, some get hung up over the word temple here because we read that in Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, there is no temple. Chapter 21, verse 22. The temple here is not to be thought of as a building in heaven because heaven itself is a sanctuary, and God himself will be dwelling with us. And as priests, we will be offering him worship continually. And our worship is not going to be as prescribed in the Old Testament for the priests, but spiritual worship of adoration and praise. Thirdly, what talking about what is the... Um, the state of the redeemed in heaven. In the third place, uh, we will uh, uh, we will abound. We will be abounding in His goodness. Verse sixteen and seventeen: They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We see here protection, provision, complete peace, and joy. In a similar language, Isaiah describing the exile returning to, from Babylon, Isaiah forty nine ten. he says, they shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by the springs of water will guide them. The idea that they will never hunger or thirst becomes more meaningful in a desert land where food and water can be scarce. But the promise goes beyond the physical provision. It points to the ultimate satisfaction of the soul. As the Lord said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be satisfied. Water is a symbol of eternal life and salvation. Springs of living water tells us that we will be at the very source of it, the very source of that salvation, the very source of that eternal life. Jesus says, come to me and drink, and I will give you water that's going to flow from you unto everlasting life. He is the source of life. He is the source of salvation, and we will be right at the source itself, Himself. Notice who will be Uh, Our shepherd. Did you notice? It's the lamb. Here's another paradox. First, we wash our white robes in blood. Now, the lamb is our shepherd who's going to lead us. Well, how is that? Well, remember, our good shepherd laid down his life for us. So he's one and the same. The shepherd is the lamb who gave his life for us. Finally, we will have an end of sorrow. And the reason for that is found in 21.4. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is a reference to Isaiah prophecy in Isaiah 25.8. It says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from the faces, all faces, And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Here on earth, our joys are mixed with sorrows. But in heaven, we will not only be delivered from sorrow, but from from every possibility of sorrow. Because all cause of sorrow will be done away with. Death will be done away with. Sin will be done away with. There will be no more anything to grieve. And so therefore, it says he will wipe them out completely. The tears will be completely gone. It's as if though you will no longer have tear ducts because there's nothing but pure joy. Nothing but pure joy, as it says in Psalm 16. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Well, I uh, thought about just leaving you with the points of application. They're taken right from the sermon. Use them in your devotional. Uh, discuss them amongst yourself and say, well, okay, what does that mean? Rejoice, you've been sealed and marked. Think about that. Meditate on that. Be encouraged in the work of the gospel. Your labors are in vain. Well, I, I drew that point because look at the multitude in heaven. You think what you're doing in giving out tracts, you think what you're doing in reaching your neighbors, your coworkers. it's all in vain. But look at the multitude. You have no idea what the Lord is doing through those means. So be encouraged and continue, brothers and sisters, because one day some of those multitude are going to be people you've witnessed to. You may not see it here. You'll see them in heaven. So be encouraged in the work of the Lord. Then set your hope on your glorious inheritance. Think often, brothers and sisters. Yes, all you hear in the news is negative, negative, negative. Satan is winning the day. Wickedness is, 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 is overtaking all things. But look, there's a day coming. There's a day coming. Look at that. Set your hope on that. This is not all there is. There's another reality. There's another glory that awaits you. Set your hope on that. Look forward to that. No more tears, no more sorrow in His presence forever, rejoicing in our Savior forever and ever. No one will be lifting a finger against Him or wag a tongue against our Savior. That is what we look forward to, brothers and sisters. So set your hope on your glorious inheritance that is waiting for you. It's only a matter of time. Amen. Who's leading us in prayer? sisters. Uh, After Brother Bob leads us in a prayer of confession, we will take uh, just a couple of minutes, two to three minutes, in silent prayer, prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper, and then I will come and give instructions about...